chapter of John, and uh, we established the first uh, leg of his triad of themes, which was just the basic work of redemption. And we see uh, uh, John in his uh, gospel pulling out um, the uh, calling of the first few disciples to uh, illustrate Jesus beginning his redemptive work. He's calling his people. He's calling his own to himself. And uh, so today we're going to be moving on to the second uh, uh, leg of the triad. Um, and what, what John does, typically, not always, but typically what he does is he uh, presents an event. And then from that event, he uh, adds Jesus' teaching about it. Uh, so, um, uh, we will be going into, uh, chapter two, uh, this week, uh, and I need a reader for chapter two who wants, who wants to be the drive-by reader, um, for chapter two. Connor? Sure. Excellent. Okay, so chapter two... Um, or the uh, maybe I should just say the second uh, leg of, of uh, the triad of themes is uh, Moses and the law, and where where does Moses uh, fit into the mission of Jesus? Where how do how do they mesh? How do these things mesh together? And what does Jesus have to say about them? Uh, so, uh, and this is chapter two is his overview of, of this part of the, of the themes. So who can tell us what happens in chapter two? Just, just off the top of your, off your head. Right. The wedding at Cana and what else happens in this chapter? Right. The cleansing of the temple. So these, these are the two things that we're going to be dealing with. And, of course, mixed in, in the, in the wedding, the wedding at Cana includes turning the water into wine. It also includes a lot of bridal imagery. Uh, so, uh, at this point, we ask again, why did the uh, Logos come among us? And the answer from chapter 2 is he came to fulfill the types of the law. Uh, And I'm going to start here by uh, reading to you from Matthew. Matthew 5, uh, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he's talking 
primarily about those parts of the law and the prophets that point to the cross. Uh, So, Connor, if you could read verses 6 and 7 from chapter 2. Six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Okay, so we've got here these huge stone jars, and they were for purification water. Okay, this is according to the law, uh, purifying yourself. Uh, But he changed them into an abundance of wine. They, they filled these jars up to the brim. So this is an abundance. Uh, and this is participation. This is our participation in his blood for an abundance of grace. Uh, I mean, this is all, I mean, this is all familiar. This is uh, nothing new. Um, now, the, the change of the purification uh, to Christ's blood... Uh, to the purification of Christ's blood is part of this long-running theme of replacement within John and uh, within John's narrative. And we're going to be seeing this over and over again. This was, uh, as far as I can tell, this this approach to to John uh, was not really prominent until the 20th century. There was a Catholic scholar uh, named Raymond Brown who, who brought this out in his own work in John about it. it was just time and time again it's Jesus replacing something Jewish with something better. You know, and this is his fulfillment. The fulfillment is always better than the foretelling or, or the type. Um, so... Uh, and part of part of this is uh, seen in chapter ten, or I'm sorry, verse ten. And the master said to him, "Everyone served the good wine first, among people who drank freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now." Yeah. So this is the best wine. Uh, it's not even just good wine. It's it's the best wine. I think some some uh, translations say best wine. Uh, and this, so this not only is uh, a way of describing Christ's work, you know, that it is the best, but it also looks forward to the wedding feast where the best wine will be, will be served. Um, and it's late in the game, you know. The, the kingdom of God, the wedding feast, is late in the game in the church's story. This was late in the game for the wedding. They had run out of wine, so this the the uh, the celebration had been going on for some time. So it's it's an illustration also not just of the Eucharistic wine, but also uh, the wine at, at uh, Christ's wedding feast. Can it also be? Well, having thought about that, given between the law and grace, the law is good, but grace yeah. is even. Yeah. Oh yeah. Better, yeah. Even right. I mean, the water purified them because God said it did, but it's not the blood of Christ. <laughs> so, but yeah, you, you can you can look at it that way. Are, are there any other thoughts? Well, you mentioned it had uh, um, allusions to uh, uh, like wedding uh, symbolism, and I remember that verse where it says, um, uh, "Wives submit to your husbands." I'm not sure where that is, but it. It kind of makes sense because Jesus is saying, in order to get, the, in order to have the best life of faith, you need to submit to Christ. And the only way that 
that gets under a lot of like modern people's nerves, but the only way that actually works is if there's the true love, because that's the only way that uh, submission doesn't feel like a burden if there's true love to back it up from. Mm -hmm. you know. but to me, it's phenomenal, too, that those jars, I mean, I guess every household had to have a certain amount of jars for purification. You know, yeah. They lived in the desert. And, uh, and so, but that, that they happen to be there, that many jars, and, well. that, and that he used them. <laughs> you know, so in a sense, you know, she's using, you know, he's not just, you know, he's not creating his own jars, mm -hmm. he's using the jars that came from the law. Basically. Right, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's fulfilling the law. You know, fulfilling the law. kind of sets up a neat imagery, too, because it says filled to the brim. So anytime you, something is filled to the brim and you dip in a cup or hands to serve it, it's going to have that overflowing visual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is, this is better. This is a change from good to the better. Uh, and here's uh, a little bit from Paul, what he says about it in 2 Corinthians 3, <clears throat> verses 7 through 9. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory, <clears throat> which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect uh, because of the glory that excels. Actually, that was, that was verse 10. <coughs> so Paul goes on and on, too, about the glory of Christ and uh, the um, ministry of righteousness being far more glorious than Moses and the law, which he calls the ministry of death. <laughs> so... Here's, uh, here's a paragraph I'd like to read to you from. It's from Genesis 12 in the Reformation Study Bible. <clears throat> Their theological notes are great. Uh, and this one is on God's covenant of grace. And they, and they put it right at the promise, the very first promise to Abraham. So I'm just going to read you one paragraph. As he Hebrews 7 through 10 explains, though through Christ God inaugurated a better version of his one eternal covenant with sinners, Hebrews 13:20, a better covenant with better promises, Hebrews 8:6, uh, based on a better sacrifice, Hebrews 9:23, offered by a better high priest in a better sanctuary, Hebrews 7, that's a long reference. This better covenant guarantees a better hope than had ever been made explicit by the former version of the covenant. Glory with God in a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Hebrews 11.16 So, 
Hebrews really goes off on this idea of something better. <laughs> so, and this is what Christ is doing. Uh, and, um, you know, this is just the overview. So he's got quite a few chapters to go in the middle of his gospel where John really fleshes this out. Okay, so what are the sacramental aspects now then of this, uh, of this event? One of the things that we talked about at the very beginning was how uh, these themes are centered around uh, sacramental elements. And each new theme you know, kind of picks up with one. Um, and also, uh, they are attached to the seven signs in John. Now, this is the first of the sign, turning water into wine. So, it's pretty obvious sacramental element here. It's a Eucharistic element, and it is <laughs> it is the wine. Jesus providing wine, you know, on top of that. Yeah, he says specifically there the fruit of the vine. So he, he's talking specifically of, of the sacramental use of wine there. Uh, so it, it's very much an uh, 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 important part of the sacrament. <clears throat> so yes, the wine reflects the Eucharist. Uh, and it, this also includes the, the mystery of the transformation. You know, how did, how did uh, Jesus make water into wine? You know, the, 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 we, we can't describe the physical process that happened there. He just, he just spoke it into being. Well, how does wine become the blood of Christ? Well, to try to explain that physically is a fool's errand. You know, it's better to say it's that way because he spoke it that way. And how, how that happens is a mystery. <clears throat> so... But in light of that, in light of all that, uh, a second a second point uh, can be found in verse four, Connor. Jesus said to her, "Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." Okay, so the obviously Mary has has asked him, you know, to or has brought this to his attention, and he's answering her, and he says, "This my hour has not come." So what does he mean by that? Well, I think there is a hint, a very strong hint, in verses 13 and 23. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What was the other verse you said? 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the sign. So we've got two mentions of the Passover. The Passover was at hand. So, I think what he is saying when he says, my hour has not come, he's saying, this is not my Passover. And I suspect that Mary knew Passover was coming, and she was thinking, you know, this is your work now. But, and so, in a way, he's saying, you don't have to worry about this Passover. This is not my Passover. Um, so, I mean, I know that's controversial. So, so uh, are there any thoughts or questions about that? There's also a practical thing, too, because 
I think on some level he had to have known that future generations, because especially the Israelites were big on uh, timed festivals and routines and rituals, that people studying uh, the scriptures like now would say, ah, I get it now because their feast of such and such and such and when, and now he's doing this, it makes sense. Especially to a Jewish audience, doing certain things at a certain time of year would make sense with festivals and... Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me, that's kind of more of a question, too, is, you know, because it says that, you know, before it says that uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, said to him, and I'm calling Mary, even at this point, just Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. She never really asks him to make wine. No. She just, she just it, brings it to his attention. Is that just a passing? I mean, why does she ask, why does she say that to her, to him? But she does now. He says, "Do what he says." I know because yeah. he says, "What he well, his answer is like crazy, like you know, why why are you bothering me? Why yeah. are you asking me that?" You know, it's a cryptic answer. Yeah, and a lot of people take it brusquely, but uh, you know, in that context, calling someone woman was actually you know uh, uh, holding them in high regard. It was not as crass as it sounds uh, to modern ears. Uh, but yeah, he basically says, "Well, that doesn't have anything to do with me." A dear woman, too, in this version. Oh, really? Well, I, I think that's probably added <laughs> to, to, but but to to give the sense of the context. Um, but again, you know, I think he's actually comforting her because she knows something's coming up. She knows something's coming up. But he's saying, "This is not my Passover. It's okay." It's more, it's more of a subtle conversation. And so she, and so she says. Yeah. And then tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Maybe was there a wink of the eye or something? So you're thinking Maybe. that she's thinking ahead to the Passover where he is. That's what, yeah, that, that's my premise, and I don't have anything to, to back it up. <laughs> Except for the context, you know, of, of this odd exchange that they have. But he leaves this immediately. Yeah. Yeah, and and knowing what comes what comes next, but it's in in context of John and his themes, it's the Passover. This is the first Passover that he mentions, or the first time he mentions a Passover. Yes, there are three Passovers in John, and they're they are always significant in in how he writes his narrative. Well, it could be that he was thinking that he was going to begin with this first Passover, and this was just a little bit. Early, between the make, turning the water into wine and what you've got in twenty three of the same chapter, uh, that many people, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed him. Somehow, between that moment and this moment, miracles were happening all over the place. Yeah, he's he's getting he's getting people's attention. But again, uh, keep in mind that John doesn't really have necessarily have chronology, and we'll we'll come up with the same kind of issue here in just a minute. Uh, and and he is jumping the gun a little bit by having by having uh, this Passover in just an overview uh, chapter. But you know, I mean, he's he's he wrote it. He gets to do whatever he wants. <laughs> Well, it was at hand. That might have been the next day. 
you know, but but it's it's impossible to tell. Uh, he's not writing according to chronology. He he's writing there. according to his purposes. He leaves here and goes to Capernaum. They stay there for a few days. Then it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. That was very specific right there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I just don't want to try to nail down a chronology because okay, yeah, that's, right. that's that's right. kind of not the point. Um, okay, so Connor, can you read uh, verse 11? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did a can in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so this this is that the, the disciple, the disciples believed on him at this point. But what did they believe? I mean, there's the, the other Gospels show a, a, a long-running misunderstanding of Jesus and his, and his mission. So they believed him. They believed on him. But what did they believe? And when did they believe? That's, that's, it's, we can infer that means immediately, but, you know, it's, it's just hard to tell. And if, you know, if, if I had to answer what did they believe at that point, I couldn't, uh, based on the, on, the, uh, on the more chronological Gospels. What it says that he revealed his glory to disciples. Right. You know, so at least this, they believed this, he was glorious. Yeah, and that's really the main point from this verse. Uh, again, uh, I think it's very helpful to keep in mind John 9, 3, which is about the man born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This is the purpose of all of these events, so that the uh, glory and will of God would be revealed. And so, and John says that flatly here in, in uh, verse 11. It also kind of speaks of a practicality <clears throat> of the faith walk, to me anyway, because I think part of the reason Mary uh, might have said, you know, hey, they're running low on wine, is because she knows who Jesus is. She knows... He has a great purpose on earth. So it's like, oh, here's an opportunity for you. You know, you're getting low on wine, you know. And the disciples kind of do that in the chosen as well. I know that's just representational. But they know, they can feel in themselves when Jesus is starting to do something big, like a big event, like the Pool of Bethesda or something like that. But then later on, I can't remember the exact scripture, but he talks about people who are just looking for signs and wonders. Where is their faith? I think the true measure of a person's faith is they remain faithful even around the lack of evidence. You know, you sometimes wonder, hey, is God even here with all this bad stuff happening? And that's the true test of faith. Do you still believe when there's not evidence to back up that things are going to get better, things are going to get taken care of? I think that's the true measure of faith. If you're able to continue in the absence of perceived uh, uh, pick-me-ups, basically. Connor. I think this verse that I just read is plenty of justification on its own for the premise of your study. Like we're doing a thematic study of John, right? Yeah. But he says this was the first of his signs. Chronologically, it wasn't. Right. I mean, even if you don't count well, the virgin birth, the well, uh, yeah. presentation of Christ <laughs> in the temple is the presentation of Christ in the temple was de- definitely yeah. counts as a sign. Yeah. So there's two right there. Um, <laughs> not to mention all. Of well, the you didn't even mention that. the star. Or the star. <laughs> so this was definitely not the first sign of yeah. who Christ is and what he's about. But for John, thematically, this is the first and foremost. Right. Because it sets the stage for this whole sort of new creation. Yeah. yeah. And it and it's set at Passover yeah. and it establishes the wine. Right. And this is very much 
part of John's thematic approach. So it is the first sign, just not chronological. Yeah, and and the church has always accepted it as the first miracle, and that may also be a mistake. Uh, but uh, the first the, the first miracle that Jesus performs, you know, as he is as he has started. Right, as he has begun his ministry. But, I mean, I'm, you know, that may not even be so. I, I don't know. Uh, although John does say, and this was the first of his signs. Uh, so uh, so we've, got, uh, we've got our first sign, and we've got the, uh, the turning of uh, the water into wine for, the, uh, for a sacramental element. Okay, uh, Connor, if you could read um, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, and can you, uh, can you go on uh, a couple more verses? In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changer sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Okay, so here we have the cleansing of the temple. Now, this is where the rubber really meets the road, John. Uh, because the cleansing of the temple happens quite late in the other uh, other uh, gospels. In fact, they're, they are the day after Palm Sunday. So, why would John have this cleansing of the temple so early in his gospel? Well, there's, there's two basic views of that. One is that he just put it early. And the other view is there were two events. And in most of my life, I accepted the two events approach. But the, the more I thought about it, the less sense that made. Um, would Jesus do this as an obscure carpenter at the very beginning of his mission? You know, this would bring a lot of attention to him. And he would probably also be, you know, thrown into the sea, you know, easily overcome and thrown into the sea, or they would have at least tried, and not that he would be easy to overcome. And in, in, the uh, I finally came to reject that point of view, which led to this idea that John is is actually organized thematically and does not really have a chronology. Uh, but I have I have a bunch of other verses here to uh, touch on. Matthew twelve fifteen and sixteen says Jesus has just done something. I don't remember what. But it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. Also also in Matthew uh, 16 and 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus, early on, was very invested on keeping it off the radar, under the radar. Uh, So, again, it just doesn't make sense to me. That he would do something this outlandish right after his first sign. You know, he's, he's only just started. Do it twice too is somewhat anticlimactic. 
Yeah. Yeah. So well, I mean, it's repetition. The second time is not going to be near as big a deal as the first one. You know, so. so, is there any other thought about that? Well, it could be, uh, uh, like you're saying, I, I, I tend to agree with the thematic thing as well, because even though Scripture is breathed from God, uh, the, the disciples still had part and parcel in it, because they knew that at the beginning of his ministry and at the crucifixion, it kind of dovetails into a nice little narrative. Like it starts off on this theme involving blood and uh, wedding themes and sacrifice, and it ends on a blood sacrifice. It kind of dovetails the narrative there. Uh-huh. So that may be an influence of the human writer, you know, saying, hey, this, this makes an interesting point, you know? Yeah. Just, yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to get more, more into that in, uh, at the end here. Um, so how does this work into the theme? The theme, the overriding, the, the theme, overview theme for this chapter is Moses and the law. So now we're dealing with the temple. Uh, and uh, so the theme here is, you know, why did the Logos come? He came to judge unbelieving Judaism. And this is why it is at the beginning of the gospel, of John's gospel. Uh, Connor, if you could read uh, verses 18 and 19. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay. <clears throat> So not this is this is a double meaning that he is here to destroy the temple. Yes, indeed. But he's also, as we know, he's also talking about his body, his temple, his body. And while he is saying, "I am destroying the temple, the very center of your worship," I am also offering life. I will raise raise up and and offer resurrected life. So, and in a way, he's. You know, the temple is all about sacrifice, animal sacrifice. It's about death. He's saying that he is about life. Uh, this is, you know, part of John's over, overriding theme of life. Uh, so, this may be crazy, but I do have lots of other uh, references uh, to, uh, to make my uh, argument. And the first of them being in Malachi. Malachi 3, 1 through 8. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So this is a mix of first advent and second advent imagery. Uh, uh, the sons of Levi will not be involved. They're not involved with the temple now uh, in the temple as, as it will be presented in the, at the second advent. Uh, so it's a mix. Um, but we can, we can see he's a refiner of gold and silver. Well, he overturned the tables that were, that were piled up high with gold and silver. Um, and uh, the offerings that were brought by the sons of Levi were not in righteousness at that time. So Mark says that he stopped all activity going through the temple, which would have been the daily sacrifices. 
So uh, this is a way that, that the cleansing of the temple fulfills uh, this prophecy of Malachi. Uh, then I've got Matthew 3, verses 10 through 12. Uh, this is John the Baptist speaking. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So when, he, when, he, when John says he will clear his threshing floor, it would have been known among the Jews that the temple was built on a threshing floor. So he was winnowing out. When he cleansed the temple, he was winnowing out with his, with his fork and burning the chaff and storing up the wheat. And I've got Matthew 23, verses 13. Verse 13. Soon after, and this is in Matthew, this is soon after the, the, uh, the uh, narrative about cleansing the temple. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now that's verse 13. It goes on for a long time, and I'm not going to read it all. Uh, but he finishes the long passage with verses 29 through 34. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. This is a very obvious uh, condemnation of the Jewish leadership, you know, who were the most holy and righteous among them all. Um, But he says they are going to fill up the uh, work of their fathers, first of all, by killing him. I mean, we, he doesn't say that, but we know that to be the case. But then he says, and I'm going to send you prophets, and you are going to murder them as well. And he's talking about his followers. He's talking about the church. Uh, so, I mean, this is the, 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 the purging and the condemnation of uh, unbelieving Judaism was really a very big part of his mission on earth. Uh, Then I've got Matthew 24, verses 1 through 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there there will be left here not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, Jesus just left the temple. He's, got, he's turned his back on the temple. This is the last time that the presence of God abided in the temple. And he, he was leaving. He was on his way out. But his, his disciples direct his attention back. They're like Lot's wife. Look back at the glory of these buildings. 
And Jesus, again, he condemns the temple, just as he does in John 3. This is going to be laying rubble before you know. This is the very center of Jewish religious life. It's going to lay in rubble. And it's because he's turned his back on it. So, and I've got Mark chapter 2, 21 through 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. These, these parables are about, are, he is expressing that his doctrine doesn't fit in Judaism. Judaism cannot hold the patch of the new cloth. It cannot sustain the spirit of the new wine. Uh, so he is, again, he is bringing something better. Uh, and uh, just interestingly, in Mark, these, these paragraph, uh, parables uh, follow uh, verses about John the Baptist using bridegroom imagery. So we've got very much the new bride uh, against the old unfaithful wife, that imagery going on and all of this stuff. So, what was that passage again? The last one? The, the, uh, the parables? There's, I think, if I remember right, there's an interplay of Greek words, kainos, neos, and it's all translated new. Uh, in the parables? In Mark? In the clock, in the clock. Oh, that's, yeah, that's Mark 21, Mark 2, 21 and 22. So that's a lot of stuff. Any, any, any thoughts about that? It, uh, I, I saw an interesting correlation to uh, ancient humanity and modern humanity in that in the ancient uh, times, that, I don't want to say ancient times, uh, but they're putting their faith in the law and the fact that they were following it to say they were good. And even God says there is none good and not one worthy. And we're kind of doing a, a different 180 now. Now you've got people making up their own laws, new laws, to justify their behavior that God has condemned. The same thing. If we make a law that doesn't uh, require that we take any responsibility for our actions, we can call ourselves holy because we're following the laws we made up. And I think that's pretty much exactly the same what they were doing. If we follow these laws, we'll be okay, even though our behavior may totally belie what we say we are. Well, and we also know from Matthew 5, you know, that the, their problem is a heart problem. You know, even if they're doing the right thing, if they're hating the, the people they're doing it for, then it's worthless. Any other, any other thoughts before we close out? So you said something near the start of this that I think is actually probably really important for this whole study. It was something like that usually in John there's there's a story mm-hmm. and then the interpretation is almost uh, it's secondary. You know, it comes after. Well, Jesus, yeah, John, John, you know, gives you the event yeah. and then he gives you Jesus' teaching that's well, based on that. Yeah. That I event. mean, the teaching is important but the big thing is the right the experience and participation of the event itself, and I, I keep thinking about that in different areas of the Christian life where that turns out to be true. Like, how many people are baptized before they really even understand everybody? What baptism is? Like every <laughs> single Christian. 
um, you know, those of you who have read Icon know that I draw a lot from the Eucharist and that I, you know, think of that as sort of like a bottomless, bottomless well of, you know, meditation. But the important thing is to experience the Eucharist, mm. right? Rather than to try to dissect every well. aspect of it. And, and Jesus calls us to experience him and participate in that's more important than understanding all of what's happening. Um, and I think maybe this thematic approach to John helps with that because it gets us out of our dissection mentality. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good statement. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we're, we're drawing to the end of our time. So I've got one last paragraph here that I'll go through, and that will finish up um, chapter 2. So it, it, the Jesus' basic... A message here, uh, as John puts it in chapter 2, is if one's personal Judaism is not fulfilled by Christ, it will be purged by Christ. So he has Jewish followers who believe, and he's got the Jewish people who are against him, uh, and, you know, represented by this old journalism, Judaism <laughs> or journalism, that, uh, you know, he is, he is purging at the, uh, at the temple. Uh, again, uh, like the tabernacle, you know, Jesus tabernacled among us. John indicates uh, Jesus is where God dwells with his people. You know, it's not the temple. It's where Jesus is. Uh, his resurrected body will be where heaven and earth truly meet. Uh, so again, this is the first Passover that John mentions uh, the contrast Jesus makes then uh, is uh, between death and resurrection. You know that we already went over that verse, verse nineteen, where he talks about the, the the temple destroying the temple, but raising up his body, the temple. So death, resurrection, as he purges their empty worship, and this leads then into the third leg of the triad which I have labeled God the Son and this, this, the overview of that is in chapter 3 and that's where we'll pick up next week so any any closing thoughts or, or anything God does not dwell in temples made by man no and he has made that a real physical reality in the age of the church it is every generation of the church where God dwells And we'll get into that a little bit more uh, next week, too. So, thanks.